man while he was preaching, he noticed a few of the heads were going to sleep. And so he pointed to one of the deacons in the congregation and said, would you please wake up those folks? And he said, well, you wake them up, you put them to sleep. <laughs> this morning I'd like for us to think together somewhat about the wisdom of God. Spurgeon made some statements about wisdom. Let me read some of it. He said, the highest science and the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than the thoughts of God. When we come together to worship God, that should help us focus upon God. He's the one we've come to worship. And so this morning, I want us to think somewhat about his wisdom. In Scripture, wisdom is a moral and intellectual quality. But actually, it's more than intelligence and knowledge. To be wise, one's intelligence must be harnessed to a right end. We're going to talk a little bit more about this end, this E-N-D. Think about God's end, God's design, God's purpose. Wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. But then there are, there is wisdom in men that can be frustrated but the factors outside is control. But this is not so with God. We think about Ahithophel. Ahithophel was one of David's trusted advisors, King David. But when his son Absalom brought about this coup d'etat, when he rose up to overthrow his father, David and his household had to flee, and then Absalom moved in. Well, Ahithophel, who had been David's advisor, switched over to Absalom's cause. And he suggested to Absalom, what you need to do is to go right now. Don't put it off. Before David gets organized, he's sort of a, in a haphazard situation now, running away. Well, Hushai had also been one of David's advisors and continued to be so. And David sent Hushai back to Absalom to sort of be... Uh, a spy, you might say, and advise Absalom to do the contrary. Get all of your forces together before you approach David. Well, Absalom went along with Hushai's advice, and Ahithophel's advice was not considered. And so Ahithophel, seething with wounded pride, 
foreseeing no doubt that the revolt was now sure to fail, and unable to forgive himself for being such a fool to join it, went home and in despair hanged himself. But God's wisdom cannot be frustrated in the way that Ahithophel's counsel was. For it is allied with omnipotence. God has omniscience. God has omnipotence. Power is as much God's essence as wisdom is. Omniscience, governing omnipotence, infinite power, ruled by infinite wisdom, is a biblical description of divine character. Let me briefly give you about five different scriptures. I'll not even give you the reference. I'll give them to you later if you wish. That brings together God's wisdom and his power. God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. With him is wisdom and strength. He is mighty in strength and wisdom. Wisdom and might are his. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel, God only wise. We know that wisdom without power would be pathetic. And, turning it around, power without wisdom would be frightening. But in God, boundless wisdom and endless power are united. And this makes him fully worthy of our fullest trust. All of God's works of creation and providence and grace. And let me pause a moment. It's hard to consider, let's say, doctors, medical doctors, or other kind of doctors who have pursued another kind of discipline in science and have gone into depth and have seen, for example, medical doctors, the, the nature of, of man. Now, things have been created by design and yet turn one's mind away from God. Or one who has studied the universe and its mathematical precision and think that this just happened by chance is beyond me. All of God's works of creation and providence and grace display his almighty wisdom. But we cannot recognize God's wisdom unless we know the end for which he's working. Let me say that once more. We cannot recognize God's wisdom unless we know the end, you know, the object, the, the design for which God is working. And here's where so many of us go wrong. And I say us, I'm talking about society in general. Misunderstanding what God is love means. Some think that God intends a trouble-free life for all, irrespective of their moral and spiritual state. They conclude that anything painful and upsetting, such as illnesses or an accident, injury, 
loss of a job, the suffering of a loved one, indicate either that God's wisdom or power or both have just broken down, or others will just conclude, well, there is no God. Surely if there was a God and he had all power, all wisdom, he wouldn't let these things happen to us. That's the way a number of people think. But this idea of God's intention is a complete mistake. God's wisdom is not and never was pledged to keep a fallen world happy or to make ungodliness comfortable. Not even to Christians has God promised a trouble-free life, but rather just the reverse. God has other ends in view for life in this world than simply to make it easy for everyone. Hebrews 12. He begins by saying that now we need to look at Jesus. Keep our eyes focused upon him. And you notice what all that he suffered? For consider him, that is Christ, that hath endured such gainsaying of sin, sinners, that is who has uh, endured such hostility, such opposition from sinners against himself, that ye wax not weary, fainting in your own souls. Ye have not yet resisted under blood, striving against sin. Oh, they'd had some persecution. But it hadn't been that severe yet. They hadn't lost their lives. They had not died as martyrs yet. And another thing I don't want you to forget, Paul writes, ye have forgotten the exhortation which reasoneth with you as with sons. My son, regard not lightly the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art reproved of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Endure hardship as discipline. Now he's going to go on, and we'll notice what, what else he has to say about it. He says, God chastens those whom he loves. You have chastening in your, in your life? Well, you ought to be thankful about it. That's a sign that God loves you. And so just look upon this chasing as discipline. God dealeth with you as with sons. He's our father. We're his sons. For what son is there whom his father chasteneth not? But if ye are without chastening, whereof all have been made partakers, then are you not illegitimate sons furthermore we had the fathers of our flesh to chasten us nobody's going to deny that and we gave them reverence shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the father of spirits and live for they that is our earthly parents indeed for a few days, it seems, chastened us as seemed good to them. But he that is God for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. 
That's the end that God sees for our lives as his children. It is holiness. In verse 11, <clears throat> all chastening seemeth for the present to be not joyous, but grievous. Yes, yet afterwards it yieldeth peaceable fruit unto them that have been exercised thereby, even the fruit of righteousness. So Paul is telling us that we shouldn't just overlook or neglect or forget about our chastening. There is a purpose. We need to be able to see the end of it. We may not, like Job in this life. What is God's goal? What's he aiming at? Well, it's to, it's to save people in heaven. But to that end, his objectives are to draw individual, individual men and women into a relationship of faith and hope and love towards himself, delivering them from sin, showing forth in their lives the power of his grace to defend his people against the forces of evil and to spread throughout the world the gospel by means of which God saves. And thus we can see God's wisdom manifested in Christ's incarnation, in his death on the cross, and in his triumphant resurrection. But let's think about his wisdom in his dealings with individuals, with you, with me working in our lives to accomplish his purposes. We can think of events in the lives of Bible characters like Abraham, Moses, David, Paul, Peter, many others, and what God's wisdom accomplished in their lives. Now, think about this. The same wisdom that ordered their lives orders the Christian's lives today. God is no respecter of persons. He did things for Abraham. He did things for Moses. He'll do things for you. He'll do things for me. He is no respecter of persons. And so we should not be too taken aback when unexpected, upsetting, and discouraging things happen to us now. What do they mean? Simply that God in his wisdom means to make something of us which we've not attained yet and is dealing with us accordingly. It's not just something that has haphazardly come into my life or yours. God is behind it. God's wisdom. God's power. Perhaps God means, and I'll give you some illustrations now, applications. Perhaps God means to strengthen us in, let's say, patience. Some people have more patience than other people. I hope everybody has more patience than I do. That's, that's one of my failings. Maybe the Lord in various ways is trying to, to develop my patience. Or maybe your patience. Maybe... 
He needs to strengthen our cheerful disposition. Some people have a more cheerful disposition than others. But isn't a cheerful disposition sort of the spirit of Christ? Doesn't the word joy appear about 80 times in the New Testament? And we're encouraged to, to be joyful because of all of our blessings that we have, and maybe we're not. Maybe we display, uh, display uh, a little grumpiness at times. When God wants a cheerful disposition, even when we have these trying circumstances coming in our lives. He's working through these circumstances to help us. Maybe he means to strengthen us in compassion. Not the compassion that the priest and the Levite showed, but the compassion shown by the Samaritan when he found the man beaten and left for dead. Maybe he wants to strengthen us in humility. Are we humble? Like the man who was awarded a pin for his humility by his, his workmates. The first day that he wore that pin, they took it away from him. Humility. Didn't Jesus say, I'm lowly of heart? You take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly of heart. Be like me. He's our perfect example. Meekness. Being able to submit to God. That's meekness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, Jesus said. And he's trying to develop these qualities by giving us some extra practice in exercising these graces under specific, difficult times. Perhaps God has new lessons in self-denial in self-distrust to teach us. Maybe he wants to break us of complacency. Complacency that's uh, being unconcerned. How concerned are we about our lost neighbors? How concerned are we about this one who suffered? How concerned are we? Complacent? Or undetected forms of pride and conceit? He's trying to wake us up. Perhaps God's purpose is simply to draw us closer to himself. How close do we feel to God? Fellowship with God is sweetest and joy greatest when our cross is heaviest. Let me say that again. Fellowship with God is sweetest and joy greatest when our cross is heaviest. You've experienced that. Perhaps God is preparing us for forms of service of which at present we have no evil. But he's working on us. He's trying to work through us. Here's a, a prayer. Many of us lose confidence in prayer because 
we do not recognize the answer that God gives to our prayers. For example, we ask for strength, and God gives us difficulties to which to make us strong. We pray for wisdom, and God sends us problems to solve. We, pre we plead for procrastination. God gives us brain and brawn with which to work and think. We ask for courage. God, give me more courage. And God gives us dangers to overcome. I ask God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for help that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life to enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but everything I hoped for. Despite myself, my prayers were answered. I am among all men most richly blessed. Paul saw part of the reason for his own afflictions. And he mentions this in 2 Corinthians 1 and 4. In the fact that God, and I'm quoting, comforted us in all our tribulations, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith God, or we ourselves, are comforted of God. God has comforted us, Paul said. Now, that's not where the comfort should stop. He comforted us in all of our tribulations so that when we see anybody in any kind of trouble, we should be able to go and comfort them because of what God's done for us. That seems only fair, doesn't it? We may be bewildered at things that happen to us, but God knows exactly what he's doing and what he is after in his handling of our lives. Always in everything, God is wise. Now, we think that we shall see this in the hereafter. We like to think that Job in heaven or in paradise knows the full reason why he was afflicted. God didn't tell him while he's here on the earth. He had this discussion with these four friends, never did understand. And though he never knew it in this life, we might or we ought not to hesitate to trust his wisdom. Even when God leaves us in the dark, why is this happening to me? And he doesn't just tell us. How are we to meet these baffling and trying situations if we cannot for the moment see God's purpose in it? Well, that involves faith, doesn't it? 
to accept the fact that God will use them for our good and that we should respond to them in the spirit of Jesus. That's our part. Paul was able to see some purpose in his suffering for his thorn in the flesh, as he called it. When Paul went on his first missionary journey and when he arrived in Galatia, where he preached the gospel, later wrote them the epistle to the Galatians. We read in Galatians 4, 13, 14, and 15 that Paul had a problem even there. Paul said, but you know that because of an infirmity of the flesh, that is bodily, um, what's that word? A bodily ailment. I preached the gospel unto you the first time. Paul said, uh, if it hadn't been for that, I might not have been preaching to you. And that which was a temptation to you in my flesh, you despised not, nor rejected, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where then is that gratulation of yourself? Where is that joy? That satisfaction that you had then. For I bear you witness that if possible, ye would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. That's the way they thought of Paul when he first preached it in the gospel. He had this thorn in the flesh, this bodily ailment. And we know that Paul begged the Lord three times to remove that thorn in the flesh. But God directly told Paul, no, Paul, there's something else that's going to serve. The Father who knows what is best for each one of his children. In fact, Paul wrote in Romans 8, 28, we know that to them who love God, all things work together for good. Here was something in the life of Paul, he didn't want it. He prayed that God would remove it, but he said it's working together for my good. Now, if that's the case with Paul, what about my case and your case? Anybody else's case? God works all things together for good to them that love him. And so Paul received this answer, no, Paul. <clears throat> God said, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for thee. And so Paul saw the purpose that would keep him humble. Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. And Paul looked no further for an explanation. God had answered his prayer. He said, no. Paul lived some 30 more years in sharp pain. In a God-sent discipline, for what son is he whom the Father does not chasten? We know that during those years, Paul prayed for others, and God answered his prayers for them. You remember when he was shipwrecked on the Isle of Malta? Publius was the head man. 
His father was sick. He suffered with fever and dysentery. Paul was told about it. They took Paul to the man. Paul prayed for Publius's father, laid his hands upon him, and healed him. But Paul could get no relief for himself from his bodily ailment. We know that Paul did not condemn God, but he endured his God-sent discipline as a special and personal providence to keep Paul humble. He said, no discipline at the time seems pleasant but painful. However, it later produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained or exercised thereby. So here's Paul's final attitude. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. How many people can say that? Most gladly. He didn't say, I'll accept it, Lord. He said, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. Why? That the power of Christ may rest upon me. The psalmist, Psalm 119 and verse 71 it is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Perhaps that's what it takes sometimes. From studying about God's wisdom, we can learn to trust God to know and to do what's right for us, though we may not understand. We know God is wise, he's omnipotent. He wants us to believe in him, to trust him, that he'll do what's best for us. He sent his son to save us. He wants us to be in heaven with him. Along the way, he's preparing us. Have you started that way? Have you confessed your faith in Jesus before men and women? Readily willing to repent of your sins and be buried with him in baptism for the remission of those sins. If you've not started the way, you need to get into Christ. You need to be baptized into his blood. To be raised as a new creature. And to walk with his wisdom and his power toward heaven. The subject to the gospel invitation. Won't you come as together we stand and sing.